For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Hello, I am Glenn Scrivener. I am Ruby and JJ's dad. I am Emma's husband, and I'm thrilled to be with you in this series as you talk about passages that have meant so much to each of the preachers. Hello to you if you're at Shoreham. Hello to you if you're at Hove. Hello to you if you're at Oasis or if you're watching on the live stream. It's great to have you with us as we think about verses that that have totally shaped our lives. And as soon as I was asked to be part of this series, I knew which passage I wanted to do. I wanted to do Galatians chapters 3 and 4, which we just had read, or at least parts of 3 and 4 were just read to us. You'll have noticed that Paul, writing this letter to the churches in Galatia, which today would be modern Turkey, he writes to them and he contrasts two ways of being a Christian. There's a slave Christianity and there is a sonship kind of Christianity. Did you notice how he kept on contrasting slaves and sons? You can treat your Christianity like God is the great slave driver and you're working hard, or you can treat Christianity like God is your father and you are a child. Which is it? It makes all the difference in the world. Paul assumed back in New Testament times, and we can assume today that churches will be filled with these two kinds of Christian. And one kind of Christian is spiritual death. To only know God as your boss and not to know him as your father is to completely miss the point of Christianity. The point of Christianity is that by the Son of God, you are adopted into his family so that you call the the master of the cosmos, Abba, Father. That's what our verses are all about. But it's very possible to miss this in your Christian life, which is why Galatians was written in the first place. We had very keen Christians here in Galatia who thought that they were super spiritual Christians. And Paul says, no, 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 you've missed the point entirely. You have traded in your sonship. You've traded in calling God father for merely calling God boss. You've sold the farm. 
you've bought into slave Christianity. Do you know anything about slave Christianity? Have you ever lived out slave Christianity? Perhaps right now, being a Christian feels like you have a taskmaster above you and it feels just like drudgery day by day. That is slave Christianity. And the Apostle Paul wants to save you from it. I want to save you from it. The Holy Spirit wants to save you from slave Christianity. I remember growing up as a Christian, I knew all about slave Christianity. I was a good Christian lad. I would go to church every Sunday. I would go to Sunday school. I would get all the answers right. I'd stick my hand in the air. I'd answer the question with Jesus. And that got me a smile of approval. And I thought, I'm in. I know all about being a good Christian boy. And it's all about me offering my life up to God. Certainly that was the impression that I got growing up in church. I remember going away to a camp aged 13 and being encouraged to give my life to God in a quite bold way. And I remember taking that challenge and thinking, yes, we were camping out in nature. And I remember going out to where there was a river and I jumped across a river to a big rock in the middle of the river, like this island. And on the rock with arms outstretched, I prayed, God, take me, use me, your will be done. And I still remember running back from that rock on the island to the cabin where we were. And I went into the bathroom and I remember sort of pulling down on the string to, to put on the light. And I was trying to see in the mirror if there was a change. I don't know what I was looking for. Was I looking for a halo above my head or a, a kind of a, a shine behind my eyes? What was I looking for? I wanted to know whether God had accepted me. There was I offering my life up to God had God accepted my gift? I didn't know. So what did I do? I prayed again and again and again and again. And I don't think it's an, an exaggeration to say I prayed a thousand times in my teenage years for God to receive my life. And that's what I thought the Christian life was. I thought the Christian life was me offering my life up to God. But how do you think I started to feel about God? after I'd prayed such a prayer 800 times, 900 times, 1,000 times. How do you think I felt? You know, my, my verse at that time was the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you know the, the point where Jesus is about to go to the cross? The night before Jesus dies, he goes away to this place in the woods, this garden, and he pressed his face into the dirt. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This, this is an agonizing prayer. In Luke's gospel, he says that Jesus sweat great drops of blood. I mean, there is so much anguish going on in Jesus that blood vessels are bursting all over his face and getting mingled with the sweat. He was sweating blood as he offered his life to God. In Mark's gospel, Jesus says, everything is possible for you, Abba Father, yet not my will, but yours be done. And I remember reading about Gethsemane and thinking, that's it. I need to copy Jesus. What would Jesus do? Jesus would go to a wooded place. He'd give his life to God in anguish. And that's what I tried to do. I tried to copy Jesus, but it didn't work. And after I prayed that prayer 800 times, 900 times, 1,000 times, how do you think I'm starting to feel about God? I started to feel like I'm knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door and he's hiding behind the sofa, hoping I'll go away. So I did. I left home. 
I went away to university and I tried to have as good a time as I could without God. What brought me back? What brought me back, not just to slave Christianity, what brought me back to being a joy-filled, beloved son? I'll tell you what did it, the doctrine of the Trinity. Is that a surprise? It's usually a great surprise for people. But it was absolutely the doctrine of the Trinity that turned me from a slave to a son, turned me from knowing God merely as boss, who I have to impress, to knowing him as father, who I'm privileged to know. It was all the difference in the world. And we can see that in our verses here in Galatians chapter 4. Let's have a look at verses 4 to 6 in particular. And you'll notice here how the Trinity is on show in every phrase. Galatians 4 verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Do you notice how the one who at the beginning of verse 4 is called God? At the end of verse 6, he's called Abba Father. So we've got God the Father. And then we see in verse 4, he sends, sends forth his Son. But not only does he send forth his Son in verse 4, he also sends forth the Spirit of his Son in verse 6. And then what does the Spirit of the Son do? The Spirit of the Son prays the prayer of the Son in me so that I'm now addressing not simply the God above, the heavenly slave master, I'm addressing my Abba Father. And it's all utterly Trinitarian. The Trinity makes a total difference because imagine there was no such thing as the doctrine of the Trinity. Imagine there was no such thing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Imagine instead there's just God by Himself, all alone, with no one and nothing beside Him, only His own thoughts for company. Imagine that. I once asked a, a friend, what do you think God was doing before the creation of the world? In the beginning, what was it like for God? And my friend said, I guess he was bored or lonely or planning, right? That's what we tend to think. We tend to think of a distant individual, high on power, low on personality, all by himself with no one beside him, just his own thoughts for company, twiddling his own celestial thumbs until he gets on and creates, right? My friend then said to me, what do you think God was doing before the foundation of the world? And I said, well, they were enjoying each other, weren't they? He said, they? And then he went, oh, you mean the Trinity? I said, well, yeah, which God were you thinking of? Which God were you thinking of? There in the beginning, before there are people or planets or protons, what was there? Do you think that God is just a lonely individual or do you think that God is a three-unity, a tri-unity, a trinity? That's how you get the name, trinity. It's just by squashing together the words three and unity. God is a three-unity. Who are the three? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bound together in love. There are actually a dozen verses in the Bible about God, what God was up to before the world began. And they are all about how the Father was finding great delight in His Son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's who God is. God is a loving union of three. The Father loving His Son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And that makes all the difference. Because if it's just me and the single God up there, what is the Christian life? 
Well, the Christian life is just me pushing an arrow up into heaven and hoping God will accept me. It's arrow up religion. And some people are very good at pumping out the prayer and the worship and the sacrifice and the obedience. Some people can really pump out a very impressive arrow and they can continually offer up their arrow up religion to the single God. Of course, the problem is you never know if it's enough. You never know if he's received you. You can't ever really bridge the gap between earth and heaven, but arrow up people, slave Christians, they give it a go. And some of them are very effective at it and it makes them proud. Some of them make a real hash of it and it makes them despair. But all of it is slave Christianity. All of it is arrow up religion. But for the triune God, there are other ways of getting the job done. Have a look at verse four again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. You see, it's not about your arrow up. It's about what comes down from heaven. And what comes down? The Father sends His Son. You see, the trajectory of biblical ethics is totally different from anything in the world, anything in global religions. It's totally, it's not arrow up. The Father sends down His Son. And then it says, He sends Him down, born of a woman. What does that mean? That means that Jesus, when He came, God the Son, the one who was there in the beginning, He didn't just come into existence at Christmas, okay? (laughs) He has always been in existence. At Christmas, He adds humanity to His person, right? It's an addition, okay? Jesus did not just invent a religion. Jesus invented the universe, And then at Christmas, he adds humanity to his person. He's born of a woman. He participates in mammalian birth. He enters into our family. Maybe that's a way of saying it. The one from the heavenly family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He comes and joins our family. The son of the father becomes a son of Mary. And he enters into our human family in every way. He he begins as a single cell in Mary's womb. At four weeks of gestation, I guess Jesus was the size of a watermelon pip. At six weeks gestation, Jesus was the size of a baked bean, you know. At, uh, At 12 weeks, Jesus was the size of a tomato. At 20 weeks, he was the size of an orange. At 32 weeks, he was the size of a cabbage. Anyone getting queasy yet? And then at full term, out he comes, Jesus of Nazareth, who is God the Son, but he is participating in mammalian birth. He is entering into our humanity, our brother in every way with eye color and hair color. And he knows what it is to participate in humanity right from the get-go. So verse 4 When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. He's born of a woman. That means He's one of us. But then it says, He's born under the law. This is such good news. The law in the Old Testament articulated the good life of God. It's supremely encapsulated in the Ten Commandments, but there are many other commandments in the Old Testament. Moses gave traditionally, uh, we, we count 613 commandments in the Old Testament. 613 ways of living out the good life before God. 
But you and I are terrible at living out the good life. The good life is good. God's law is good. It's holy, righteous and good. It's just that we're not and we fail at it. We fail at it every single day. But here comes God the Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And this is phenomenal. The one who gave the law put himself under the law so that every day he would live out the good life of God, that, that good life of loving God and loving neighbor. Well, I guess Jesus has been doing that for all eternity. In the life of the Trinity, he has constantly been loving his Father and loving the Spirit. And so as he comes into our humanity, he earths that good life of love in our humanity, loving God, loving neighbor, even to the point of death. And so Jesus does the arrow up for us. Isn't that good news? The Christian life is not you offering your arrow up to God's. The Christian life is Christ offering up your arrow to God in your name and on your behalf. It's beautiful. Jesus lives your life for you and he dies your death for you. Everything he does, he does for you. Did you notice that? He is born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The whole point of Jesus doing that is he does it for you as your champion. I love the idea of a, of a champion. You know, Jesus is like, he's like the footballer who comes into your failing team and he turns things around. You, you know, when the, when the amazing Brazilian teenager gets brought into your failing side, okay? And maybe you're in the relegation zone. Maybe you're about to go under, but suddenly this guy comes in and he puts on your uniform. You know, if he, if, if he puts on the uniform of Brighton and Hove Albion, suddenly he is, he is your champion. And everything he does now is for you. Every goal he scores is a Brighton and Hove Albion goal, right? Every victory he gives you is your victory, right? And if he takes you all the way to Wembley to win the FA Cup, then that's your victory. And, and if you're in that team, then you'll be at Wembley. You'll be jumping up and down like a total maniac, hugging, hugging total strangers because you both have the same T-shirt that he had when he scored that goal. What's going on? He wins, you celebrate because he is your champion. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who has come to us, not from Brazil. He's come to us from heaven to live the perfect life. And that's what the gospels are. You know, when you read through the gospels, what are you reading? You're not just reading about Jesus, your coach. Oh man, if you only think of Jesus as your coach, that is slave Christianity. So many people read the gospels and you know, Jesus does something nice. And then you think, oh, I should probably try and be a bit nicer myself. Thanks, Jesus. Thanks for the tip. Thanks for the advice. I'll take your coaching and I'll try and put it into practice. See you later. That's how some people think the Christian life runs. In that case, Jesus is just your coach. Jesus is kind to people. I should be kind to people. Jesus prays, so I should pray, right? That's not Christianity. That will lead you to slavery. True Christianity is that Jesus, your champion, puts himself under the law and lives the good life for you in your name 
and on your behalf. You know, if a great footballer tells you how to kick a goal, I guess that's helpful. But if a great footballer comes into your team and takes the penalty in the 90th minute to snatch victory, right? If he does it for you, that's totally different. It's the difference between good advice and good news. You know the difference between good, good advice and good news? Let's say you're studying. If you're studying, I might say to you, get enough sleep, drink plenty of water, go to the library between nine and 12 every single day without fail, I, get a coach, whatever. I, I might give you all this sort of advice about how to pass your degree. That would be good advice. Good news is you have just graduated, graduated with the top first in the university. Congratulations. That's good news, right? Good advice puts the pressure on you and it's all down to your performance. Good news comes to you from outside yourself and it's nothing to do with you, which means you can't screw it up. It's yours. Celebrate. That's why the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they are called good news. It's literally what the word gospel means if you translate it out of Old English. The gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John. It's the good news that Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem you who are under the law so that you might receive adoption as sons, so that you might receive everything that Jesus has. That's the good news. In Galatians chapter 3, it talks about the way in which Jesus has become one with us. In verse 29, uh, in fact, we'll go from verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 29 says, you are Christ's, you belong to Christ." So Jesus comes and he wants to clothe you in his goodness. He wants, to, he wants to cover you in his righteousness. He lives the perfect life for you. He dies the cursed death for you. He rises up again and he says, I want to present you to the Father so that when the Father looks down, he doesn't see you in all your failure, he sees me in all my goodness and grace. And that's the offer. If you're baptized into Christ, you've trusted in Jesus and you said, Jesus, I know that you've joined my team. I want to join your team. You say that to Jesus. He clothes you in himself, takes you by the hand and leads you back to the Father so that now you are seen by the most high God, not as the sinner that you are but as the beloved son that he has made you, the daughter, the child. And if it's not just good enough that we've got Jesus wrapped around us, Galatians 4 verse 6 says that we also have the spirit of Jesus in us. Galatians 4 verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So Jesus offers the arrow up in our name, and then the Spirit wraps us around and He sweeps us up into the Son's relationship with the Father. It's beautiful. The Spirit of Jesus sweeps you up into Jesus' relationship with God the Father. So that now 
you can call the emperor of the cosmos what Jesus calls him. What does Jesus call him? Abba, Father. Do you remember that phrase? It's from the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus offering up his life to God in that once and for all way, he gets to call God Abba, Father. Well, of course, the eternal son of the father gets to call the emperor of the cosmos, Abba, Father. It's a very intimate phrase. It's, it's the sort of phrase that in Aramaic, the language that Abba comes from, it's the first word that flies out of a baby's mouth when he sees his daddy. When she sees her daddy, she says, Abba, Abba, Abba. It's very intimate. It's very personal. But in Aramaic, it's also the word that you would use for your father when he is much older and when you're much older. It's also a term of deep respect in a way that daddy doesn't quite cover in English. So it's a term of intimacy, but also a term of deep respect, but it's from the heart. And now the spirit of the son places the perfect prayer of Jesus in your heart. And the spirit cries, Abba, Father. Did you notice that in verse six? Who is praying in verse six? It's actually the spirit is praying in verse six. The Spirit places Christ's prayer in your heart so that you know God not merely as the man upstairs, not merely as a boss, but as your Abba Father. That's your new spiritual heartbeat. If you belong to Jesus, your spiritual heartbeat is Abba Father, Abba Father, Abba Father. It's good news, isn't it? And it totally saves your Christian life. It takes you from being a slave to being a son. I said earlier that the Garden of Gethsemane haunted me in my teenage years. I said earlier that I had spent my entire teenage life giving my life to God. I had bought into the arrow up religion so much. What brought me back? Well, it was the doctrine of the Trinity because things fell apart in my world. I tried to have as good a time as I could without God, and I fell in a heap. And a friend who had been inviting me to church for many years, he finally said, why don't we sit down and read through Luke's gospel together? I said, all right, all right, I'll give that a go. So we read through Luke's gospel, and I was getting acquainted or reacquainted with Jesus and how awesome he is just walking around planet Earth like he owns the place. The towering personality, the stooping love, it was making such an impact on me. But then we got to the end of Luke's gospel and we were about to study the night before Jesus dies, the Garden of Gethsemane. And I remember saying to my friend, I don't think I can, I don't think I can handle this part of Luke's gospel. It's too much for me. My friend was very wise. He said, Glenn, what do you mean it's too much for me? I said, well, I, I can't do it like Jesus did it. It's too much. My friend said, Glenn, do you think you're Jesus? I was like, well, you know, not, not in every regard, obviously, but aren't, aren't we meant to copy Jesus? My friend knew instantly that I had bought into slave Christianity. He said, Glenn, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you are not Jesus. You know who you are. You're Peter. And what's Peter doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's sleeping. He's rubbish. He's failing. And Jesus prays for him. And as soon as I got that, I was like, that's it. 
It's not my life offered up to God. It's Christ coming down and living the perfect life I could never live. Living the arrow up of perfect obedience, perfect sacrifice, perfect worship, perfect prayer. And he does it all in my name and on my behalf. He wraps himself around me and sends his spirit into my heart to catch him up into all that he has enjoyed forever. So that now I call on God the way he calls on God. In his name, I pray, Abba, Father, too. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. He ever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his hands. My name is hidden in his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Let me pray. Our Abba Father, it is an immense privilege to call you Abba Father. And we know that we have not earned it. But we praise you for your son, the strong, mighty champion, the Lord Jesus. He has lived under your law perfectly, spotlessly, righteously. He has lived our life. He has died our death. He's risen again and ascended to your right hand. And he carries us on his heart as our great high priest. Father, we praise you for your son. And we praise you for the spirit of your son who right now in our hearts cries, Abba, Father. Father, thank you. Thank you that we are wrapped up in the eternal love of you, our great Father, in Christ, our great champion, and in the Holy Spirit, our great comforter. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray and do all things. Amen.